Welcome, neighbor, to Folk U Radio, Folk University's talk show, taking old school viral. I'm your host, Manda O'Fox Gillespie. It's embarrassing, all the stupid things I can think of to think about. Is there anything that could really bring? Hello, neighbor, and welcome to Folk U Radio, where we ask our neighbors, what do you know? Folk University is an experiment in neighborliness, in slow learning, in using our interests, our skills, and our beliefs as a way of connecting and bringing each other closer in community. Today, we're talking about the power of human connection. Can we design our spaces, institutions, and lives in such a way as to create more meaningful social connections? If so, how? We have in the studio today, Bruce Hayden, architect, designer, neighbor, to help lead our conversation. Where are you listening from today, neighbor? Who are the people that have walked and cared for the land, the water, and the air where you live, work, and play? Cortez Community Radio sits on the ancestral and territorial lands of the Kalahus, the Kalaman, and the Hamako peoples. I'd like to thank this land, the people who have walked this land through time, and all those that continue to love and work to honor this place we call home. Bruce, welcome to the studio, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you for inviting me, Amanda. What a special, special pleasure. Uh, I'm so glad we get to do this transitional time of year together and, uh, and in person. It's great to be here. Um, and it's, I have to say it's a real honor to be the last show of 2022, which is, so let's make it a great one. Uh, well, I, I plan on it. It's also a time of year when people begin to often think especially about social connection mm-hmm. and their lives, um, the, the isolation they may feel, mm-hmm. the, um, the people they've lost, uh, what they want from this life. And uh, I have billed you quite large today because um, I have said, no, I have not led with the fact that you're an architect and a designer and with all of these big things that people, when they Google you, will find um, behind your name. Instead, I've led with this idea that's far harder to explain of social connection mm-hmm. um, and your uh, as a thought leader in this realm. And I'm wondering if you can tell us, you know, how you got to the place or why this has been such a passion, whether it's been through education or something more personal. Well, uh, I think I think that, that all of us arrive at kind of our core sense of life purpose, and this is one of mine for sure, with a variety of influences. And, and of course, my family of origin. I grew up in Kingston, Ontario with a, with a, um, really thoughtful parents. Uh, and I would say that one of the things that I really noticed that the difference between my parents was that my mom was inherently social. So my mom had, in the way I think that women tend to more naturally do, had a kind of 
um, a coven, a group of a group of friends that she was intentionally and thoughtfully connecting with all the time, even in the depths of. I grew up with a family of mostly five kids. Uh, even in the depths of the intense busyness of motherhood, I did notice that she always maintained that. Whereas in contrast, my father, um, who suffered both from alcoholism and from depression, was much more isolated. Like he was struggling. I actually asked myself a few years ago, and I was trying to remember, I I could not name a single close friend of my father's. And my dad was a a thoughtful and caring guy. He loved his work as a psychiatrist. He he knew, he had, I, I would say, a community, a work community, certainly, but he would come home. He loved being a dad, but he would come home and after sort of 6 p.m. at night or after dinner, usually, he would sit out on the deck and he would drink on his own and he would brood. Um, and so I, you know, I think all of us as children, we wake up and we kind of, this is what the, the actually, I think it was a term you taught me, the water we swim in, right? So I thought this was kind of normal. And then I recognized that actually he was profoundly isolated. And I think that that isolation contributed, I think these are circular, that the isolation contributed both to his alcoholism and to his depression. Uh, And I think that when I saw how my mother and my father handled different situations, I picked my mom from a basic perspective. All right, so I... Wondering if you can lead us a little bit through the making of Bruce Hayden, architect, um, you know, design thought leader, et cetera. How does one take an interest in connectivity mm-hmm. or sort of, you know, choosing one's mom and social connection uh, and turn that into a career? Well, it actually didn't quite work like that. Um, You know, I think like most people, I think that a sense of clarity about the things that you really care about for me came later on. It really wasn't until my mid to late 20s that that I really started to bring uh, my my career and my uh, my kind of passion for social connection together. And, And that came about from a few things. So one was that um, well, let me step way back for a moment. Right? So I, I, I went to went to architecture school, and we can talk more about that arc. And I think when I first started, I was actually, I would say, I really struggled. I struggled a lot um, with, with I, I started architecture school too young. And I didn't actually at that point have a very strong network. I certainly didn't have a strong network network at, at university. I arrived, I grew up in Kingston and I went my first degree at University of Waterloo. And Waterloo was full of these kind of hip Toronto kids that kind of knew the codes. And uh, and I didn't know the codes. I grew up as a shy kid. I was in high school. I was kind of a shy, fat kid. And um, so for me, transitioning to university was difficult. And uh, and I struggled quite a lot in, in, in that arc. In fact... Um, uh, I distinguished myself in my first year of university by actually being the lowest in the entire class in my studio. And at that point, they used to post the grades. So um, you, the you, the measurement of your, one of the measurements of your popularity in architecture school, which is, uh, I can laugh about now, but it was actually both humiliating and painful at the time, uh, was you would do, we would call, we do what we call crits. And so a crit is you pin up your work and there's a kind of array of people um, you know, professors and recent graduates and guests and things like that who are criticizing your designs. And, uh, and you can tell the popularity of people. So when I would pin up my work, every, all my fellow students would just leave the room, except for a couple of kind of loyal, loyal acquaintances. Um, 
And so this was a kind of core challenge to, I think, I think a, a core, the reason I'm telling this story isn't to look for sympathy. When I look back, what happened was that I was in a period of my life where I, in high school, I just tried to keep other, other people happy. You know, I'd be a good rule follower. And, and I just kept doing that. And that didn't really work in architecture school anymore. And I recognized by the time I got to my longer story, and we can go back to that if we need to, uh, by the time I got to my second degree, it was much more successful. The key decision I'd made was around um, uh, identifying those things that I cared about and trying to express those things that I cared about in my work, a sense of purpose. Now, I wouldn't have been able to articulate those things as clearly as I can now, but certainly it was kind of, it was as simple as what are those things that I'm prepared to fail for? So my first degree, what I'd done is I'd kind of tried to keep everybody happy and I had no clarity about the things that I really cared about. Um, and so in asking myself the things I, I prepared to fail for, one of the things I started to do was just to look at those things that I did naturally. And one of the things that I did do naturally was I, lo I loved bringing people together. And I love bringing people together, particularly in the context of um, what I think of as authenticity, places, creating safe places for people to kind of be themselves in whatever way work for them. Um, I started a, a men's team at that point. That was one of the things I did. So it was a really kind of a bringing together of, um, of the things that I cared about in the same time that my basic architectural skills, which are in fact, entirely separate in some ways from the idea of social connection. I've actually been able to bring them together much more recently in a real active and concrete way. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, I was doing all the kind of discipline of learning any difficult profession and getting on to that stage. So that's um, some of the summary of that. There's a whole bunch of details in there, but that's an introduction to the topic. Uh, <laughs> I feel like there's so so many places to go and I want to try of course because it's me to go with the most nebulous kind of hard to define one but I um, I like this parallel between our family of origins and and the environments in which we grow up in particularly our cultural environments right mm -hmm. and cultural environments are shaped as you've already alluded to by so many things mm -hmm. um, by our families by the culture around us by uh how we look and what gender we identify as, et cetera. And I, I feel, um, you know, particularly as an immigrant, like quite aware of how much we cannot fully articulate that water that we swim in that is culture. Um, you kind of know when things aren't quite right or you don't really fit into it perfectly, but you don't always know why. And I think, and I know this is a big leap, but I feel like there's aspects of design, particularly when you're trying to create solid structures, buildings, um, uh, buildings in relationship to other buildings. These are solid. People get them. Mm -hmm. Mother, father, um, sister, brother, uh, man, woman, building, um, school, etc. But they're swimming in things that are not seen, but are still experienced. Mm -hmm. And so I, I know this is a huge leap and I'm trying to, um, but I'm, like, I'm wondering if when in your life, and maybe this was at architecture school or maybe it was much later, you started to understand um, that the things that you were swimming in when it came to design, like they weren't just not there because you couldn't see them. 
Like mm-hmm. these were things that were influencing the solid objects and the people within them, whether or not we could see them or not. Uh, like, did you like when when did you start discovering that, and what did that look like? Um, I, I think some of this is twenty twenty hindsight. Of course, you can understand these things in retrospect. But maybe one of the ways I can answer that question is to kind of bring together a little bit of a description of the house we grew up in with my family. Um, because uh, we grew up in, as I say, in Kingston, Ontario, and is uh, so Kingston has historic core of kind of limestone, which would have been the for years the wealthy place to live, right? Even though a small town, all, all older cities have these kinds of places. They're different building materials in different parts. In Kingston, it was limestone. We were just outside that, and the way that the our house was built by a builder, and it was actually built of concrete block kind of made to look a little bit like limestone. So it was sort of like, you know, how you can get a stucco house and they've kind of drawn the lines in it to make it look like real stone. So, um, but that, and that's the kind of, that's the funny part, but but it was actually a thoughtful, well-built house with, with what I would characterize as a certain sense of integrity. And I think integrity is a is a quality I think of as an architecture quality and a human quality. So um, it was. I remember, for example, that at one point my mother redesigned her kitchen, and um, uh, and she hired an architect to do that, which I didn't even imagine was possible at that age. I didn't even really know what architects did. But the way she described it, she said, you know, the house has a certain quality and we want to respect that quality, um, not by keeping it exactly the same, but to understand how to keep it good and high quality. And it was also a house without, um, and like my family, it was a house that was largely unpretentious. Um, you know, we didn't have, there were, I had friends who had literally the room with the plastic furniture, you know, the one where you bring it up, you never actually, where the, where the guests would sit. We never had that kind of room. Um, we always, we, we shared all our spaces and because most of the time when I was growing up, there were five kids in the house, you know, there's lots of running up and down stairs, but it was also, um, visibly, there was a lot of visible wood, for example. So that kind of quality, like if you think about the difference between a wood floor, let's say in a carpet floor, a wood floor has a sense of permanence and authenticity and integrity about it. Whereas a carpeted floor, even a beautiful carpet, I'm, don't get me wrong, I'm not opposed to carpet, um, uh, it can be quiet, but it will always change over time. And there's nothing wrong with house changing over time. So like that, I think that 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 we had a family that was fundamentally not that interested in being showy. It wasn't a showy house. It was a high quality house, but it was a, uh, the house that allowed you to host people nicely, for example. Um, my father didn't do that very often. My mother did sometimes, but it was certainly a house where, for example, um, uh, my friends were always welcome as a real concrete. And it also was a house where there was a place, there was an area to just experiment. You know, um, most of the houses in the, in Kingston where I grew up had these, had the basement, right? So, so we would do like, um, uh, we, we, that's the place where my dad would do his, his, uh, illegal apple wine making. It was actually still illegal at that time. Um, that's the place where, where my brother and I would build hot wheel sets. And when we got really crazy, we'd set the plane, the, the cars on fire and we'd run them down. Right. So the, that kind of place of experimentation as well. So I think for me, that combination of an inherent authenticity and a place for kind of experimentation and cutting things up and making mistakes was something that I would say that my parents also 
they bought both of those kinds of values. Um, I think I had the advantage of being fairly far down in the kit. I was the second youngest. Um, and so they'd sort of done, you know, they, they gave us a lot of, a lot of rope in the way that sometimes happens with younger children. So that for me was a combination that, that came together. And I also would say that, um, the other characteristic about this that that was also characteristic of my family was I think of it as a kind of right brain left brain thing. When I went to high school, um, uh, we were very close to Queen's University. A lot of my friends went to Queen's, for example, just because it was the place. If I'd gone to Queen's University, I would have done my entire education in a square mile. Thank God that didn't happen. Um, but what happened was that that uh, my my friends either went to engineering school, in which case they were kind of proud of never picking up a novel again. I exaggerate slightly. Or they went into the arts, in which case they were proud of never picking up a calculator again. And I always liked both of those parts of my brain, right? I really found, and it's still, and it's, I would actually say it's still true to me many, many years later, that architecture is one of those places where you have to have what I think of as a poetic consciousness and you have to have a technical consciousness. And if you don't have either, if, you, if, you ha- if you're too weak in either one of those, you're not going to be a great architect. You can still have a really great career in architecture for sure, um, but it'll tend to be a kind of slightly narrower career. Uh, we're having the paparazzi has come by to take photos of us. So if you hear a door squeaking, it is indeed exactly what you thought it was, which was the our fans, our mini fans uh, in for autographs. So, um, you know, that's how we roll here at Folk We're just very accessible despite our high stature. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit more about this because we were talking about um, architecture and design and social connection and how these things as well as so much of our lives are actually formed by the water we swim in as a mm-hmm. sort of meta re- metaphor we're going f- for. And uh, so I want to pick this apart a little bit um, because I'm guessing you're in your mid fifties, early fifties. You're such a good host and you absolutely <laughs> thoroughly know that I just turned 60. Okay. Well, you look younger. So your parents, um, you know, came in age at a very different time. And mm-hmm. I think there is a huge part of the water that we swim in that has to do with the time that we Absolutely. are alive in. Um, and it sounds to me like in some ways your parents were kind of maybe not cultural revolutionaries, but certainly edgy, right? That they're creating a space for a kind of growth. And I'm wondering how, like, to the extent that that's actually true, and also how that runs up against then, you know, of your father, for instance, who you've mentioned, who's clearly a very educated man. He's a psychiatrist, mm-hmm. the height of his education, but also was isolated. Mm-hmm. And what you think that role of your, the times, how the mm-hmm. times influences what is possible or likely, perhaps, in a life. Mm-hmm. Um, and the extent that we can actually push that. Yes. That. So very good series of questions. Um, so both my parents were English and they came from an odd, um, I, I joke that my family came from a line of failed engineers. My father's father, and, and I only ever met one of my grandparents because both my parents, my, my father was quite old when I was born. He was 48 when I was born. And the, um, my dad was born during the First World War. 
So you're thinking extraordinary changes. So he, he was born in 1915 and died in the late 90s. And his, um, but he, uh, his mother had been uh, fairly, came from a wealthy family that supplied coal to the Birmingham, Birmingham Glassworks. So he had some kind of fancy glass when you're growing up. Uh, and that company, for reasons that we never quite figured out, kind of essentially went bankrupt. So my dad was actually at Cambridge at the time. And he went from like the top floor to the bottom floor um, uh, because it was all based on how much money you could pay in many different senses. And my mother came from also a wealthy family that his her grandfather had invented an, an alloy that didn't corrode in seawater, which is very good for ship's propellers. So we still have this book, like the Lusitania, for example, had that, uh, had that ship's propellers. But both of them kind of had a fall from grace. My mother actually grew up in council housing in London, in very, what's now a very fancy part of London, but at that time um, wasn't particularly fancy. And my father, as I say, had this fall from grace, but his transformative experiences happened earlier is that he went to a boarding school, which was very common, and he was beaten as part of his his religious education. So he had a, um, a very clear memory of, in his view, I, I will never, of course, know the truth of this, in his view, being unjustly beaten, and the headmaster at the time felt very guilty about this and gave him a book to compensate. And so um, my interpretation of that, based on how he behaved in the world, was that he had a really strong and clear sense of uh, the often evils of hierarchy. And the evils particularly as it played out in England of class. And my mother was the same. So um, when my, my father was stationed as a physician during World War II for a while on the west coast of Africa and loved Ghana, he actually loved Africa, but he also think had a really clear sense of the inherent racism that he hadn't really been aware of when he was back in England. And so, in fact, when when they chose to leave England after the war, um, my father gave my mother a choice of being Ghana or Canada. And I think Ghana would have be, certainly been a crazy choice at that time, but I could have grown up as a Ghanaian, in fact. Um, but what happened, I think, is both of them, and again, probably not, they probably wouldn't be able to articulate it, had a deep discomfort with the inherent really strong classism and racism of England. And I think some of that was shaped by the fact that I'd actually seen a whole range of it. So my dad literally had fallen from grace. And, you know, in a highly hierarchical society, when you fall from grace, it really sucks. Um, but it was more that, that they had this intuitive flavor. And so both of them, when they arrived, they felt immediately comfortable in Canada. And it isn't, we should never say that Canadians are perfect by any stretch of the imagination. We, you know, that's obviously a, an incorrect statement. But relative to the kind of the rigidity of the class system of England, um, they felt much more comfortable here. Um, I grew up, you know, they, they just, they, they had an extreme sense of being at home. And I remember having a great conversation with my mother at one point when in her seventies, you know, she'd kind of dutifully returned to England to visit relatives every once in a while. And she just said, I'm done. Like Canada is my home. She still has an English accent at 97, even with a dementia and she hates it. And I wouldn't say she hates England. That would be a wrong statement. But for her, Canada was home, as for my father. I think these things are so interesting. I love um, what helps give people perspective on, you know, on their culture, on the things that have shaped them, even if we are somewhat 
trapped by them and certainly formed by them, the idea that we can, what it takes to get some amount of perspective and self-awareness. Mm-hmm. And it it seems to me that it wouldn't be necessarily so that the sort of second generation would have that. I, I think not every immigrant even has it, but a lot of immigrants have it. A lot of people who are economically on the outside, mm-hmm. um, a lot of people. Uh, people who are uh, the opposite of immigrants, you know, more indigenous to places, but have been on the losing end of so many mm-hmm. choices of um, colonization or institutional decisions, I feel like often do have the the grace um, <laughs> to to see the the yeah, the dark side maybe of what we take for advantage for granted. Um, but you somehow got some of that despite being to outside appearances, very Canadian, white, male, mm-hmm. um, et cetera. Did, did other people in your family end up pursuing kind of alternative pathways or thinking about the world in a different way that makes you feel like, yes, actually, like... <laughs> oh, well, I have a bunch of crazy siblings. Um, and, uh, and I would say that we often focus when we're talking about origins with, uh, on our parents, um, but my, I would say it would be dramatically different person if it wasn't for my siblings. Um, and, uh, the way I describe it now, because there's some sad stories is that, uh, my mother had six children and there's three of us left. So there was a, um, but again, in the odd period of that, my, um, uh, what would it be my sister, Sandra, who I never met died of chicken pox. Because my mother had got chicken pox while she was pregnant. They can handle it better now, but they at that point. So Sandra lasted um, 10 days. And that was a huge tragedy for my, for my dad, especially, I think. And, uh, um, and then I was Sandra's replacement. It's a difficult word to use, but you know what I mean. And my younger brother was, um, was uh, in part because they were worried that I wouldn't have anybody to play with because my next brother up was a little bit older than me. But as adults, I would say that for whatever reason, um, and I think it was the, the, the fact that my parents had seen the costs of a, rig- of a let's call it a rigid education, um, and I'm not going to say my father's education was bad. I think he was an excellent physician, but I think he had an intuitive understanding of the costs. And so they, my parents are very open to all sorts of different choices. Now, we all ended up doing higher education. But if you look at what happened, so my eldest sister, Claire, who also struggled with depression and was a suicide in her early, um, early 30s, uh, was an artist and a passionate and good artist and a very, very, um, very intelligent person, I would say. Not perhaps as much emotional intelligence as one would want, longer story, um, but certainly extremely intelligent. My next brother down became a social worker, like my mother. My mother worked as a social worker and ended up um, being really active in Vancouver. We all, all my three brothers and I ended up in Vancouver, longer story again. Um, And he worked uh, in the area of drug policy reform. And still does until very recently, he was the head of MAPS Canada, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies. And some of that was another strain of my father's history, which is he had done um, psychedelics. He'd done LSD under clinical conditions. Um, he was one of a small group of Canadian psychiatrists in late 50s and early 60s. Recently found a paper that he did or participated in on this. Um, and so I think some of that was about um, that kind of conversation was an open conversation in our household. And it was one of the things that drew my 
um, eldest brother into a field of drug and alcohol abuse treatment, probably also related to my dad. Again, longer story. But but this was a this was not a trendy thing to do. Let's put it that way. Really important work. He ran a, a drug and alcohol abuse clinic for years. Then my next brother down. Um, was a geologist and then went and did an MBA at uh, UBC and then ended up running a software company that, that um, but one of his goals was really to create an enormously powerful sense of community at work. So he described to me at one point that um, he was very proud of the fact that the very high percentage of his staff, not a huge staff, would say that this is the best job they'd ever had in their lives, right? Which I always have kept in mind as, as I've been a kind of running various sizes of firm practices. I thought, what a lovely thing to be able to say. Now, and my younger brother, who I was very close to, and is a sad story, um, took a slightly darker path. So he was a researcher in things like marine sources of antibiotics. He'd done biochemistry degree at UBC and spent time out at places like Banfield doing scuba diving and pulling things up um, because there's a desperate need for new types of antibiotics as we had antibiotic resistance. But his dark side, and we're very, I'm very public about this, was that he would um, buy street ecstasy, ecstasy and purify it. And he, the reason he would do that was he was very, very clear, and is something I 100% agree with, is that kids will do substances. They will find a way to do substances, and they should have a safe supply. You know, really, really straightforwardly. And we can talk a lot more about that. But one of the stories that I've sometimes told when I talk about this, which I've done so publicly, is that my father was an addict. He was just an addict to something that he could get a regular and safe supply. So it didn't completely screw, screw him up, right? It obviously caused damage. I am not diminishing the dangers of alcohol. Alcohol is a very dangerous substance. But he was able to keep the rest of his life together. Whereas someone, you know, if you think of the horrific risks of the opioid crisis now, fentanyl and all those kinds of things that are occurring, um, some, of the, some of that is an absolutely preventable tragedy. And my brother was willing to take this one on. He also liked being on the dark side a little bit. He liked having a kind of criminal existence. He enjoyed that. He lied to me about it. And then he would tell me what was going on. And he lied. It was a complex, complex relationship. And he died tragically while he was actually cooking ecstasy on his kitchen stove in Vancouver. Um, there's a Vancouver Magazine article about it, if you uh, if you Google it by Francis Beulah. And... Uh, and the fact is that the coroner was very interested that it wasn't the ecstasy that killed him. He just happened to have a heart attack at exactly the wrong time. Um, so, um, but all of this, I would say that, so I think what I, what I appreciated about all my siblings is all of us, I would say, were actually interested, passionately interested in contribution. And I would include every one of us in that. Um, the other thing I would say is that we're interested and open to the idea of that contribution not being in a in a way hugely associated with traditional definitions of status. Now I can say that architects is a high status profession. I mean, you know, I'm not, but it, but that more happened to be where I chose to to kind of apply my trade more than the fact that it had those those sorts of traditional associations of status um, with it, and that certainly wasn't true of my my other siblings either. Um, and I think that that each one of us had a sense of 
of kind of a willingness to experiment and a willingness to contribute at the same time. And that was a huge gift. I mean, we in fact all lived together as adults for a little while, which was lovely. We shared, we had a, a house with two suites and my um, Kent and Paul, my younger brother and my next brother up uh, were in one suite and my brother, eldest brother Mark and I were in the other. And we all kind of shared this house in Kitsilano. And what was great about that is we were able to reestablish our relationship as adults because so often as a kid, you know, you got all those stupid little, you know, you picked on me this day and you stole that toy that, you know, the stuff that kind of screws you up in a little bit of way and, and makes it difficult to see your siblings as humans, right? And we still have a strong relationship to this day. And I still I have to say I learn every day, not every day because I'm not in contact with them every day, um, from my experience of my siblings. And so that's a really important thing. I. Uh... I just there's a million places to to go with all this, but I'm going to take us back to the really concrete. Um, will you lead us a little bit through your career as an architect? Because sure. you've come maybe almost full circle um, mm-hmm. in that career too. So I'm wondering if you can tell us, a, you know, a couple of. Uh, you know, sort of how you got started off as actually working as an architect yeah. and um, and then maybe even some of the projects that you're particularly proud of sure. in those days. Um, so after, uh, so I had this really struggle at the University of Waterloo. And then uh, I had this odd experience when I went back to UBC um, where I actually graduated first in my class. So I went from literally from first, uh, worst to first. Um, and again, that was an incredibly useful, useful lesson for a couple of reasons. Um, you know, being both the star and the schmuck, and the way I describe it, it's way more fun to be the star than the schmuck. But in fact, neither one of those have to do with what you need to learn. They're both about outside perceptions of who you are. Um, and so it, I, it was really interesting when I ended up doing a little bit of teaching at UBC where I would really think quite closely about what what's what's this next person's lesson, right? What what in what way can I contribute? So where are they in that kind of hierarchy? How do they see themselves? So that was one of one of the things. But anyway, so I finished I finished my architecture school, and I had a couple of lovely experiences. One was that I was actually I think the last employee of Arthur Erickson Architects um, before he went bankrupt and became part of a larger corporate practice. Um, and uh, I was a summer student. I wasn't aware that the firm was firm was going under, but it was also um, a great experience because, uh, first of all, just to, to see the studio and see people like there's something incredible about seeing people that are passionately committed to the work, sometimes to their own, not always to their own benefit for sure. And I'm, that's a part of architecture that is that is very challenging. But these people loved the work, right? And they really, really wanted to. They saw, thought, saw themselves a part of a kind of arc of West Coast modernism. Um, and the other thing I learned at that, there was a really critical moment when I was working on the design of the Bayshore Lands, so it, which had been a long competition. It ended up being my next firm, which is a firm called Hudson Balker Architects, and Arthur Erickson Architects were working on the project together. And there's been this funny process where there are a bunch of big egos all would show up. And I was the summer student. And there, all of these egos would show up in the room and they'd fight with each other. I wasn't there, right? But then, then they kind of these, this, the, the kind of nebulous compromises of this fighting would come down to me to drawing some stuff up. But what I watched is I watched this process of the project in some ways getting worse and worse because people were kind of angling for their position. And it was a big complex. This is a large urban design site around the Bayshore near Stanley Park in Vancouver. It's a big site, lots of residential, like six or seven towers. 
And so I said to myself, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to try to start from the beginning. Because I now knew what everybody cared about. Because everybody kind of made all the things, including the city and the client, all these things. So I knew the rules. So I drew up another scheme. And uh, I just kind of did this on my side. And I went to my my immediate boss at the time, who was clearly incredibly uncomfortable with the summer student making a suggestion. And... Um, and so I got that discomfort, and then so I realized that the only way that the scheme would get a hearing would be if I went and talked to Arthur Erickson himself. And I'd, of course, met him briefly, but on the context of kind of, you know, literally kind of rubbing shoulders in the, in the, in the coffee thing, I'd never actually had a conversation with Arthur. And at that point, I was actually working outside the office because they were going, long story, they were going bankrupt. But um, um, so I was in another office. So I called back, and I talked to his secretary. I said, is Arthur around? He said, yeah, he's flying off to Abu Dhabi or something tomorrow. So I hopped on my bike with my roll of drawings and I went over and I said, can I just have a few minutes? And he said, sure. And so we sat down and he got excited by this scheme. And the thing that the, the, the reason I'm telling you this isn't that it's like, aren't I great? Wasn't I kind of a precocious kid? And I was a little bit, but it was more that what was interesting about it was that he was at the stage of his career when he was actually open to anything, which I thought was really lovely. Because so often what happens in people in their mid-career is that they're, they're, they're not actually open. They're still trying to prove themselves. It's got to be all about them. And so that was very inspirational to me. Um, then I ended up working for the other firm in the partnership, um, Hotzenbacher. And I worked and I went through the kind of fairly grueling process of getting my registration, which is annoying, difficult, technical, nine exams in four days, a lot of, lot of tough stuff. Um, and I'd always known that, I hadn't always known, certainly not in a period of early insecurity, I knew that I would want to try being a firm leader. I wasn't attached to being it, but I knew if I'd never tried, if I'd never tried it, I would never, I would always have a sense of dissatisfaction. So um, I did something, if there are any aspiring architects, don't do this. Um, I left Hotzenbacher Architects and I started my own practice with a 900 square foot house addition and a small commercial interior that didn't get built in three years. Uh, my taxable income my first year was $13,000 and I was working about 70 hours a week and I would clean the washrooms on Saturday. Um, and I joke about this, that, that certainly set me up for future success. It was a difficult time. You know, I would literally go out and get 99 cent pizza and a Coke for dinner. I was the worst date ever, you know, because, you know, if you're, if you're dating some fancy lawyer, at least they could take you out for a nice dinner. I couldn't even do that. So I was working all the time and had no money, which is the worst combination possible. But I also learned. I learned all of the difficulties, you know, the issues of dealing with clients, the issues of dealing what, you know, one of my very early projects went badly wrong, um, nothing to do with me, but they ended up firing my client in the middle of the project. Um, so I had uh, those, those high quality experiences. And I also had a strong and positive relationship with my previous firm of Hotzenbacher Architects. And eventually they invited me to come back as a partner. And some of that was that I'd been willing to show some entrepreneurial, you know, I was willing to go out and try it. Um, some of it is they knew they needed to refresh. They had all the qualities of an old family firm, like lots of loyalties some built up kind of resentments that weren't really resolved. Um, but a huge sense of community contribution, like their founding project was Granville Island. They were in charge of the re re redesign of Granville Island. And that kind of urban ethos and making things visible was something that I, that I also cared about, was interested in. So that was in the early 2000s. And then so um, that was immediately attractive to me in part because 
It's still a difficult process to start as a young architect practice. The procurement processes for public work are very complex. So it wasn't so much that I suddenly had a whole bunch of new clients. It was more that we had a platform. And so um, with that platform, then I was able to move into starting actually some work that's been really influential for me, which is the Indigenous work, which was just by chance. I ended up literally being on, uh, invited on a research trip just before I became a partner in that firm to go to work with the Asoyas Indian Band on the on looking at some precedents for a desert cultural center, which became the Inkamip Desert Cultural Center in the South Okanagan, um, which is still a super meaningful project for me because it introduced me in a really deep way to Indigenous clients and, and uh, that particular group, because you don't want to say Indigenous clients are all the same, very important, um, and uh, and the building itself ended up. It's got that's if you 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 may know it, but it's the largest rammed earth wall in North America, and it was came out of a process of really listening for their concerns, and ultimately what they saw, what they wanted was a symbol, and they wanted a symbol that the Asoyus Indian Band had been on the land for a long time, and they were going to be on the land for a long time, so they were actually and they're. Chief Clarence Louis, who's very, very well known, highly entrepreneurial and interested in this. So it preserved a large chunk, the only intact real desert in Canada. Um, and, uh, and then, so that was a seminal project for me. And then we ended up working, working. So I worked in a, as a um, principal in HBBH for, for many years. Then we did a merger to create a much larger firm called Dialogue with four other firms, three other firms across the country. And I found myself with 40 partners and 600 staff. Um, and that, but there were a couple of really important projects in that process. So um, one was uh, um, the UBC Student Nest, which was the student center at UBC. And that was the most complex, the most terrifying, exciting architecture selection process ever. We got long listed and then the seven firms had to do a live presentation in front of a student student um, um, body that could ask questions. We had the weekend to edit the video of that live presentation. It went up on YouTube, and any active student in, in UBC could vote on their favorite three architects, which was completely terrifying and incredibly exciting because it also forced us to articulate our thoughtfulness. Like, what were the things we cared about? What were the things that we felt there was an alignment with the student body with? And... Um, and then we got to that last three. So we were one of the top three vote getters. We we're number three. Um, and then we ended up winning it in, an, in the regular kind of interview and fee proposal process around which you select architects for public work. And the reason that was really important from a social connection, returning to that perspective, is that we know that many university students are isolated. Um, and especially as we've got more and more students that don't even get to go, like they, they're from China or from India or from Russia, and they don't even get to go home during the school year, or sometimes not for an entire entire course of their degree. And they know, based on things like suicide rates, that social isolation in university is really a big challenge. And so we saw, amongst many other things, we had a strong sustainability agenda, um, that it had to be fundamentally a place of community. And community is a word I actually don't use very often because it's so often used. It's like community innovation, I think, are words that nobody's ever opposed to any of them and nobody knows what, actually what they mean. But in really physical terms, 
So um, the, just a couple things about how we design the space of the nest. So it's a very large atrium. Sometimes these spaces can be, can be too large. But one of the huge advantages of the atrium was that you can literally be at the very top of the building and look down and recognize a friend. And that kind of real source, that basic physical connectivity, I think is one of the places where architects can make a difference. Architects often think they can do a lot around social connection, but on a real very simple level, if you can't see anybody, there's no opportunity for social connection. Aside from some funny, you know, there's of course some weird, weird other examples you'd come up with. But the other thing that was important about that building is we designed it very consciously to have an extroverted side and an introverted side. So there's one side where they do the large community events. It's very flexible. You know, when the, the beginning of the year, when people are signing up for clubs, there's you know hundreds of booths all across the place and it's packed with people. And there's an introverted side where if you want to just have a quiet conversation with a friend, um, you know, there's still a degree of, so, of, of connection spatially, but it's much more designed to be a place where you can have those kind of longer, quieter conversations that are essential to social connection. So that's a kind of concrete way that we thought that um, that the UBC student nest reflected this idea of social connection, not the only idea, but that was a seminal project for me. So it was interesting because the one was a, the Incommute Desert Cultural Center is a very, very symbolic building, important actually as a hub for the social connection of the community, but not as prime driver, whereas the nest also had a strong symbolism, but primarily it was really about bringing people together. And then you're not still with Dialogue, so tell us uh, about your firm now and some of the things you're working on today. Sure. Um, well, we left, um, so I, I left Dialogue after about uh, five years, and I simply am not a good fit for a big firm. You know, I uh, um, even in this kind of conversation, I have to be careful about the kinds of things that I would say in the context of a large corporate practice, and there's nothing wrong with those kinds of practices huge number of highly intelligent people doing really important work across the country. Um, I just need to be a, a little more hands-on and a little more, a little more quirky. So we, we took a sabbatical. I traveled with my family a little bit. We had some real lovely adventures, including doing um, uh, the Mercut Masterclass, which is a very famous Australian architect who teaches a, a class for senior practitioners for two weeks. And it just, for me, it kind of, reinvigorated my joy in hands-on architecture in drawing and being in a kind of studio environment not having to worry about the money and all those kinds of things um and then i kept an eye out i had sort of offers from various firms to do various things and then i really felt strongly that if i wanted to kind of really bring my life purpose and my architectural purpose together in a, in a rich way again that we needed to start over so I had a number of conversations with with different potential partners, and the one that surfaced was um, my good friend and partner, Peter Atkinson, who was a senior associate at Dialogue, thoughtful, incredibly passionate about the the, uh, the rigors of sustainability. Like, um, again, it's one of those things, it's easy to kind of wave your arms and talk a good game, but, you know, landing it in terms of design, building design is really difficult. Um, and so we started a firm called Human Studio, 
um, five years ago, and we now have about 15 staff and four principals, myself and Peter, uh, Heidi Nesbitt, who's also really passionate about regenerative design, which is really the next stage of sustainability, not just doing less harm, but doing more good. Um, and uh, Maya Lowe, who kind of keeps us all in line, who runs our studio and, uh, and, and aligns around things that we care about a lot, which is culture, right? How do we, how do we interact with each other? What are the, in what way, I mean, if I go back to my brother's example, in what way could this be the best job people have in their lives? Okay, so I only know a little bit about architecture from the outside, sure. but it feels to me that there's this, um, speaking of design, that there's something that we've built into the design of architecture that um, makes it really hard to be the small, quirky outsider firm. And and the, the why I believe this, and this could be completely wrong, so set me you know, straight or give us more facts, but... I, um, you know, you describe the process of going after uh, the NEST, the Student Community mm-hmm. Center, right, at UBC. And in my mind, I am running the amount of hours, yeah. the pro bono unpaid hours that a team, a huge team put into making yeah. a, a design, a pitch, a video, editing the video, a compelling case as to what might be done um, before you even you know, just to maybe get chosen. And I have to imagine that's not uncommon, that level of effort just to be able to play ball. Mm -hmm. And um, and it just makes me wonder, yeah, have we, like, have we created a monster out of something really beautiful and good, an architecture in our culture? And is this the way that it's always done or has to be done uh, the simplest answer to that is, well, yes to the first, yes, we've created a monster, and no, it's not the only way to do it. If we were starting a firm five years ago and I was in Denmark, what I would do is we would we would set it up, we'd say, we, we are going to eat, you know, noodles and, and uh, scavenge for roots and grubs for a year, and we're going to enter design competitions. Because so many more in Europe, in general, there's lots of variation across Europe, but... Um, uh, many, many public buildings go through a design competition process, which has some challenges too. I don't want to overstate that it's a perfect way to do it, but from starting a firm practice, it's great because the way we pick architects now is, um, if you've done 10 schools and they're all mediocre and our firm has done one school, that's great. Um, the firm that's done 10 schools is the lower risk choice. Um, and so one of the great losses for me in moving from my previous practice was I kind of lost my portfolio from that perspective. Like we'll often have a procurement process, for example, I don't want to just kind of sound whiny about this, where it says how many firm, how many buildings of this type have you completed in the last five years, which for a five-year-old firm is literally mathematically impossible, right? So, um, so we have that struggle. Now, of course, both Peter and myself and our other other principals, Heidi and, and Maya, have some credibility. And we can't understate that credibility. But from a kind of point scoring perspective, it's somewhat difficult. Um, I remember we came, um, when I was at uh, HBBH, we came second or third to do a new Douglas border clock crossing, for example. And we had what's called a debrief, which is 
they tell you why you didn't get the job. It was quite funny. It was a kind of federal government project, and there was a the passionate Quebecois woman, um, the the guy from Ottawa, as far I could tell, as far as I could tell, kind of flown into Vancouver for the weekend, and and then um, somebody else who didn't say anything, and the one person actually appeared to have read the whole all the proposals. Anyway, it's a complex process. These were not evil people. It's just kind of we set up these systems. And so we go through this long list of how we didn't quite score enough on this one because our structural engineer made a mistake or something like that. Um, and I just said to them, I said, at one point, I said, at any point in the decision-making process, did quality of design come up? And they actually said no. So, and this is in part what we've done is we've created a system of selecting architects that in some sense quite properly is risk averse right? As opposed to excellence oriented. I'd love to be able to help find a way to, to have uh, more excellence oriented choices rather than risk averse choices. And maybe this is at the heart in some way of social connection and human connection, right? Mm -hmm. Like the safe choice often is isolation. We don't have to be um, confronted by people who are different from us, things that make us feel uncomfortable or unsafe, yes. because fundamentally, um, when we're at the edge, our learning edge, our, the edge of really of design that's going to a new place or human connection that is going deeper, that feels uncomfortable often, mm -hmm. right? Like there is a tension there. And so I'm wondering what, like, have you been able to participate in processes that feel like they you know, where you're pushing that edge and you're actually getting to change the way that we are thinking about design or creating uh, mm -hmm. structure, institutions, places in our world where you're like, oh, yeah, this is going to change what we not just like our moment of experience, but change how we go about, um, yes. you know, the future, the future of of architecture, design, connection. So tell me about some of those those edgy experiences? Well, I'm going to give you the one of the projects that I'm most passionate about right now, which is not a design project. It is a design project in a different way. But I'm going to start by the, the by giving a lens on what you described. You talked about um, uh, the, the you know, that we're often um, resistant to meeting new people. Like one of my criticisms, for example, is that the real estate industry is focuses on isolation, luxury, luxury and control as the most desirable things, right? And the more isolation, the more luxury you have, the more control you have. So you, in fact, never need to meet people that are different than you. This is like the penthouse. Like you want the penthouse. Exactly. It's at the top. Yeah. No one can access it. You won't meet anybody in the elevator because you have a special yes. key or whatever. Okay. Exactly. And I think that's, to be blunt, a tragedy. It's a tragedy for environmental reasons. It's very consumptive. Um, but it's a tragedy for social reasons. Um, the And so I've looked at this. We were working one of my other projects that I did a dialogue that I was just in construction when I left was the downtown Anutsmuts, downtown Eastside Strathcona Public Library. Um, and it, so it's a small branch library on Hastings Street in Vancouver. It's also the library near our house where our kids go there. I go there. Um, and, uh, and it had housing for single mothers above it. So this is long-term housing for women that in some cases are fleeing violence, coming from many different circumstances. But, but in a lot of cases, they're, they're not there if they're not having some life struggles. This is not luxury housing for people that have everything figured out. Um, this is people who've hit the wall in one way or another. And we knew that social connection in that environment was going to be 
even more valuable than it is for you and me. Um, and just so we know, like one of the examples we often use when we talk about this is that social connection is a real health risk. It's not a nice to have. So they know, for example, that um, the social isolation has about the same increased risk of death as smoking 20 cigarettes a day. Like it's a real cost and it shows up in people's health and it shows up in societal health. It's not a nice to have. The challenge from a design perspective is that we've, um, even though we've known that in principle, is we've had very few tools to, to give it a concrete value. So for this housing, for example, we did two types of design. We did a, the traditional type of design, which is called the double-loaded corridor situation. You being in apartment buildings like this, a stairway at one end with an elevator, a stairway at the other end, this firehouse, or units on one side of a corridor, units on another side of a corridor. It's often the only sensible way to lay out this kind of building. That's what we ended up doing for various reasons. But we did many other alternatives. And one of the other alternatives was what we call a stacked townhouse model. So for simple terms, let's just say you have a series of units wrapped around a courtyard. And you step out of your, uh, out of the, your front door and you'd see something like 70% of the other, uh, other front doors of the units. And every unit would be able to directly supervise the outdoor play area, which is above the library. We knew this was going to be better from a social connection perspective. But it had a higher exterior wall area, which has an effect on both building cost and maintenance. These are really important questions. Building cost is a really important question. But what we've always found is that when a hard metric comes up against a soft metric, the soft metric loses. Okay, and so I want you to, the hard metric in this case is cost. Hard metric is cost. The hard measurable cost came up against a soft social intention. And so I said, I am tired of losing these kinds of battles. So I had a little idea, and I can't, to be honest, remember where that idea came from exactly, but it certainly was generated around this project. And I said, well, you know, like, what if we could find a way to understand social interaction in building before they're built? And I said, well, you know, video games have people running around buildings all the time. Can we borrow that technology? It's one of those kind of naive things that you do if you're not a, you know, not a video game designer. It's like, oh, of course, this is so simple, right? I, one of my beliefs as I get older is that every single piece of work is actually enormously simpler from the outside than it is in the inside. Um, but, uh, um, and so we, we, came, we did have this idea and we got a little bit of seed funding from BC Housing. And we do a lot of BC Housing work, work now. And we're really grateful for, for both that and the work um, is... Uh, and we just researched, because we thought somebody must have done this before. Like, it seems kind of obvious. And in fact, as far as we could tell, nobody really had. Um, and then we got a little bit more um, money. And then we got a big breakthrough, which was we, um, I was at the TED conference. And I got a chance to pitch the Robert Johnson Foundation, which are the largest private funder of public health initiatives in the United States. And so they gave us money under what they call the Pioneering Grantees Program, which is, which is kind of ideas to really change health outcomes in substantive, substantive ways. Which, and everybody knows social isolation, it's become much more of a real deal. And the pandemic actually had isolated, had, had indicate, um, uh, increased our focus on this in all sorts of ways. So what we were then able to do is to do a public good open source software project that uses... The easiest way to understand it is gaming technology that's not actually accurate, but it uses what we call agent-based modeling. So in simple terms, we build two building design options. We build them in 3D on the computer, 
And the tool, it's fundamentally focused on housing, although the engine can work for any type of building. We have to build what we call use cases for it. Again, I can try not to get too technical. And the um, what happens is that, let's say we have two options for an apartment building. Um, our digital agents run around. The digital agents will have simple characters like an externally employed adult. So an externally employed adult will do certain things on a random basis. And occasionally that externally employed adult might run into the next door neighbor and the, the engine will literally record that as a moment of possible contact. And so what we're able to do is simulate the life of buildings and compare what some of those things are. Now, earlier we were talking about the UBC student nest and I said like, without physical contact, you can't have social connection. At its basic level, I'm not diminishing the value of the internet and phone calls and things like that, but we're really passionate about actual physical face-to-face contact. Um, And so what we're trying to understand at a basic level is how does building design influence that contact? So many people, for example, have told us that they know high-rise buildings are often quite socially isolated. So our belief around that, having tested them, is that, that our model indicates that that is the case. And it's actually simple, is that that what happens is that your moment of social contact is, uh, your opportunity for social contact is maximized if your path between the front door of your building and your unit is visible to others. And if you think about a high rise, often it's a very short path to the front door of the elevator. Elevators we think are not very socially contact, as some people have disagreed with us a little bit, but anyway, let's take that as a premise. You go up often to a private floor, only accessible to keys that might have five or six units on it, right? So you have a very narrow, visible path of contact. In a courtyard building, if you're crossing in front and you're entering through, let's say, a little front deck that's on a courtyard level, you often have a much higher percentage of opportunity just to say hi to your neighbor. You might not like them, you know, you might love them, all of those kinds of things. Um, But it just gives you that. And and what we found um, is that this uh, effect is interestingly different in magnitude than we expected. So, for example, we're doing a small indigenous housing project in Nanaimo, about 40 units, something like that. This is a market housing project for their economic development corporation, this Nanaimo band. They... um, um, So we, we modeled two different options for this. And let's just call them A and B. Now, I knew B was going to be better than A just from that setting the stage for social contact. And if you pushed hard, I'd say twice as good. We modeled it was 10 times better. And it just had to do with a different path from where you parked your car, very auto-oriented community. Most people would be arriving by car or bike um, to how you got to your unit. So that gave us really good design information. If I go back to the origin example, and it let us go to our clients and say, this is a real measurable value, akin to the issue of construction cost in terms of each measure. It doesn't mean it's always going to be the value that wins. It just means you have a tool to put on the table to build an argument, which we didn't have before. I'm going to take this moment to say you are listening to Folk U Radio here on CKTZ 89.5 FM, Cortez Community Radio, or maybe you're tuning on on the great World Wide Web at CortezRadio.ca. We today have Bruce Hayden, architect, in to talk about not just design, but also 
human connection and how we can design every aspect of our life, perhaps, for greater human interaction and connection. All right. So I want to talk a little bit more about this um, this program, this app. Called this Fluid Sociability. It's a software program. It says Fluid Sociability. <laughs> um, and it sounds to me somewhat like a walkability index or a score. Can you talk about how it's similar and how it's dissimilar? And then one of the great questions, I mean, one of the kind of big uh, mysteries would be why Vancouver itself, I am going to imagine, does very well from a walkability perspective, mm-hmm. but is considered one of the loneliest uh, cities uh, you know, I don't know if in the world, but I certainly hear all the time that it's considered a very isolated city. So can you run us through like why you might be good at one and why you might not be, you know, not good at the other? To be absolutely honest, Manda, I would love to have the answer to that one. Um, I do think, and I don't know the answer exactly. I think that there's, there's probably a few things. I do think that um, a cultures that are relatively new and have grown really fast tend to have a slightly weaker fabric. Um, we're a secular, quite a secular culture, um, and I'm not a religious person at all myself, but if you know, for example, the work of people like Robert Putnam, who wrote a book called Bowling Alone, what he identified was that the, the loss of, you know, the Rotary Clubs, the bowling clubs, as his example, religious organizations, those kinds of kind of informal, um, well, formal meeting places that often brought people together in community, again, and, and with a different degree of intimacy. Like what we know is that what they call weak ties or even casual social connections are really important. Knowing the name and saying hi to your barista in the morning when you get a coffee in an urban environment is actually known to be good for your health. It's an interesting scenario. Um, I don't quite know why Vancouver is like it. And I would say it's also my experience as well. I think that um, I've always found it when I first moved here, I certainly felt quite isolated. It felt like a cliquey city. Um, um, but but I think one of the consequences of that, it's been interesting, again, that people, um, good things can come out of problems, is there is this kind of... Um, grouping of people that are interested in this issue of uh, what I call evidence-based sociability. Um, and it's only a portion of happiness. And one of our collaborators is doctor in at UBC with the fluid sociability works is Dr. Elizabeth Dunn, who has amazing TED talks out there. She was the one who, for example, who did this lovely elegant study that, that said, even if you have your cell phone visible on the table face down, it reduces your pleasure in a meal. Um, it's a, she's, she's just amazing. We're, I'm so grateful to have Liz as a supporter of ours. It's just like, it's the greatest gift you can imagine. So the, she's working in this area of happiness and this is an area of interest to her. There's John Hellowell, who's some of the godfathers is he's also a UBC trough. He, he created the world happiness report and edits it. Um, there's people like happy city and happy city is one of the other people who have really been using this idea of an evidence-based understanding of design. So they'll do things like put heart monitors on people and have them walk through different urban environments to help understand how you physiologically react to it. Because there is this real uh, huge gap in the knowledge that our work has, has I think helped surface 
it's actually a pain in the ass on one level because it means there's huge work to be done, which is what I call the physicality of sociability. Like how do our bodies react when we're in social connection? Like how far away are you likely to say hi to someone? What aspects of the physical environment will make a difference to that, right? You know, do you want to be too bright? Do you want to be natural light? Those things. Remarkably little research. But the research that is going on is often going on actually in this region, interestingly. Um, and another example, which goes back to your example of the walkability score, um, Dr. Larry Frank, who until recently was a, was a professor at SCARP, the, um, the planning school at UBC, has now moved to, um, um, to, to San Diego. But he was one of the originators of the idea of the walk score. And he does really large-scale data crunching on things like um, obesity and diabetes. Like, uh, are you more likely to be diabetic in a suburban context? The answer is yes, because you have to drive more. Um, so he, so he's very, very good at that. So one of our goals with fluid sociability would be to actually have a sociability score for buildings. I'm hesitant about this in some ways because the process of bringing numbers to the table is one that can be very valuable. The process of just making decisions based on numbers can be, I think, actually often send us in the wrong direction. Um, uh, Liz Dunn talks about it sometimes. She said this is a persuasion tool in part, and it shouldn't be necessarily 100. But it would be the reason we talk about the walkability score and a sociability score is people get it, right? It's an easy entry into what's actually a really complex topic. But wouldn't it be interesting to know on one basic physical level that if you live in this building, you're going to meet your neighbor's 10 times a month, often it's quite low, interestingly, in multi-unit residentials. Whereas in this building, you're going to meet your build neighbors 30 or 40 times a month. And even to think about it, because I, I love architecture, but I'm not um, a believer that by any stretch design will take away all problems. I mean, you can have a beautifully designed office for social interaction. And if the culture sucks, everybody's going to hate each other. It doesn't, but um, what I want is architecture not to get in the way. And you can also identify things like, let's say you have a building that inherently is really poor from a social interaction perspective. So the kind of basic physical activities, you can address some of that with um, programming. Um, one of our, our current uh, research partners is a group called Covington Group, which is a small developer in Vancouver. They care a lot about this stuff. One of the things they do is they'll do a breakfast every month in the lobby for all the residents of their buildings. Really simple stuff. That's incredibly important. And they think it's great. It's These are rental buildings, reduces turnover, increases the care that people, reduces maintenance calls, all those kinds of things. So it has these real kind of concrete things. And, you know, that, in fact, it's entirely possible that those, that kind of programming, which is also something we think is really important, um, might be dramatically more important than the physical shape of the building. And we'd be modest about that. What we know is this kind of issue of... Um, uh, again, to go back to your example of walkability score, there's all sorts of things that need to add up to make these great places. And so what we know is that there's this gap and this gap is around the effect of design on sociability. And we just want to get better at understanding that gap. Doesn't mean other things aren't important. They're dramatically important. You have to get everything right to be really good. But um, we want to help fill that gap. You mentioned earlier that... Um looking at high-rise towers, often they perform poorly on the sociability mm -hmm. um, uh, index or sociability score, if we are thinking about it that way. And I would certainly say that um, 
from just knowing people who live in high rises, this is their experience. Like mm -hmm. they very rarely see their neighbors. And when they do, they often don't feel good about the interactions that they're having. Yeah. Oh, my neighbor called, you know, the animal control right. because they saw yes. my dog yes. pooping yes. on my, you know, it's, exactly. it, I mean, it's really yeah. a lot of stories like that. So I'm wondering, but, you know, it's also Vancouver with these incredible land prices, right? Yeah. Like, and so I have to imagine um, one of the reasons that we are building endless sky rises there mm -hmm. is because we just, to make the numbers work and to get enough units, you, you build up. Yeah. Um, and so are you like, do you have examples or places you've seen where you're able to get a pretty impressively high number of units, but to do it in a way that also um, created maximum sociability? Sure. Um, I'm, I'm just uh, as you uh, I'm hearing the voice of my uh, validation partner, Dr. Elizabeth Dunn in my head. And I, one of the things I should say always about fluid is we're still testing it. So it would be wrong to say that we figured out high rises. Um, and what we're testing is we're running it on existing buildings and we're surveying the residents. And some of that process got delayed because of the pandemic. That's really important. So we don't actually know whether we're getting real results yet. Um, we think we're getting something useful. We don't know exactly the shape of it. So we're still with, there's a lot of work to be done there. Um, well, I'll be totally indulgent and actually use the example of my own house, which you've been to. And in fact, you lived in the same complex. So my family... Um, and I live in a complex of six townhouses, which is actually relatively dense. So it's not high, it's not high, high, high density by any stretch of the imagination. It's much denser than a single family house. And it's in cor a corner lot in Strathcona, uh, a 50 by 120 foot lot. And um, we have a shared backyard. And the advantage of that share break, and we, we have a, that for a bunch of reasons. One is we didn't have it at the beginning. We always had kind of access, but we kind of put it, put it together as a, as a team. And we all kicked in a little bit of money to do the work. And it's a great, one is we can have one great big barbecue as opposed to a bunch of crap, small crappy ones. So that both is better from a sustainability perspective, better from a space perspective and better from a cost perspective, all those wins. But the best way I think about this is I want my kids to have completely safe places. They can knock on anybody's door at any time of the day and night. Because one of the important things about social connection is also community resilience. Like you use a concrete example of my wife, Holly, having a really bad migraine one time, and I had to take her to the hospital. And at 11 at night, our kids were very young at the time. I literally went and knocked on my next door neighbor's door. I said, I need you to come and just, you know, sleep on the couch. The kids were asleep while I go to the hospital. No question, no problem, not, you know, that's, and that's really important for community resilience. I know it's a thing that happens in a place like Cortez a lot as well. Um, but, uh, uh, but those, th that's an example of a kind of, it's a, it's, so it's a big step up from the single family residence, but then the next one would be kind of courtyard buildings. Um, and so one of the challenges of courtyard building is they tend to kind of push, like we are often under pressure in uh, our region and most many regions of the world to kind of protect the single family neighborhoods, right? And so we need to squeeze the mass, the size of the building as small as possible. If you think about a courtyard building, inherently it's pushing the size of the building to the outside. But courtyard buildings have that opportunity for that. Oh, one of the great things they have is you can see people on different floors, right? So let's say you have a four-story courtyard building, you can still recognize someone on the fourth floor, right? 
And so even, again, that ability to have so, so the, those kind of smaller scale um, interactions, and not all of those spaces, by the way, need to be fully public. Like you often want to have a lot of private outdoor space, still visible, kind of think of the front porch, still visible to other people as kind of activators. Like it can be great to have like a playground area that's surrounded by private outdoor space because the private outdoor, you know, people are barbecuing and things like that. So the playground has some life, some informal supervision, those sorts of things. So we're a big fan of courtyard buildings. Okay, so I need a little bit more descriptor in a courtyard building. Would a courtyard building... Sure. Um, I imagine, like, like one of the things I imagine is sort of something that I've seen in some cities where, but we don't seem to do a lot in Vancouver and BC, I don't know why, where this the stairwells are actually on the outside yes. um, or on the inside of the courtyard, but they're, they're not um, interior to the building space. Um, but that doesn't necessarily have to happen in a courtyard. No, but it's a good thing because, again, it can be something that gives people a visit. So one is... a. An outdoor stairway is generally better than a horrible concrete fire stair. Not always. There's some good concrete fire stairs and some horrible outdoor stairs. But but, but it's also more visible to your neighbors, which is a great thing. And one of the things that's a constant battle is the way the building code is constructed here um, is actually different than in other parts of the world. So, for example, um, we have a fundamental premise that you, if you're living in a multi-unit residential building, you have to have two paths of travel to an exit. So if you step out of your front door, you have to be able to go, let's just say in simple terms, right or left to get out of the building. And the idea being, very logical, that if there's a fire to your left, you go to your right. Unfortunately, that imposes actually huge constraints on lots of aspects of livability of the building. So it makes, for example, um, some types of courtyard building much more expensive to do. But the, the simplest way to think about, um, well, let me, let me put it another way. We often assume that high rise is the only way to do density. And it's certainly true that very high, large, large high rises are very, very dense on a kind of per square foot of built area relative to the square foot of land area. There are a dense way to do it, but they also come with some density costs. So for example, you can't put high rises 20 feet from each other. So uh, there are there are lots of examples in the world of very dense neighborhoods. Think of European context. Think of um, African context or Asian context, like or the like. The Chinese courtyard housing is a very dense, dense form of housing because there's virtually there's no space between the houses at all, which you can't do in a high rise context. Um, so I personally believe that one of the reasons we're attached to high rise is it's kind of like, um, well, on one level, it's kind of phallic symbolism, right? You know, you use the example of penthouse. I live on a 30th floor. Yeah, that, that moment when, when you're in the elevator and somebody presses the 30th floor and you press the fourth floor, right? You know, it's a kind of really concrete and direct example of, of hierarchy in a very, very simple way. Um, and you think of the fact that, you know, the race amongst the Gulf states to build the world's tallest building. So I think there's a lot of actually not useful, um, and we're not opposed to high rises on principle. Like I think almost all good cities have a ton of different mix of things. Um, but I think that the, the race to height in high rises is actually mostly premised on things that in our belief aren't the most useful. 
I sort of hear you saying, and and all of a sudden I kind of understand in a different way. If you're, you know, if you're looking at just the building, okay, so great. Here's this high rise. Yeah. That's just the building. That building got a lot of um, square footage per unit in you know in a small yeah. uh, overall footprint. Yeah. Um, but if you're looking at a city as a, as a whole. You look at, say, we. Um, my family went to Paris recently, and yes. what a dense, very dense, dense place where with shockingly little high rise experience. Yes, um, but you you like looking per block. Not only are there a lot of people in that block, but those people are spending a lot of time outside, seemingly with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you know, even my kids commented on what a different feel it was to and how safe they felt being in a place where you know it's not like the french are known for being friendly no (laughs) but they are certainly sociable yes um so that that's kind of what i think of when when you're saying this and so i wonder um if we could go almost the extreme other end and talk a little bit about cortez yes because i look at these sort of rural communities um, and Cortez is a beautiful example, but it's not the only example. Much of Canada is made up of relatively isolated, Mm -hmm. remote, small communities. um, And I don't know how they fare on a sociability perspective, but certainly um, on Cortez, you can't really survive here that long without knowing your neighbors and, um, and relying on them to some extent, and hopefully let having them rely on you. Yes. So, can you talk about um, how we measure or can make sense of sociability when it is so far outside of the urban context? Sure. Um, I think that one of the things that would be important to state as well as is it would be easy to say like you know um, that everybody should want to be social. Of course, there are people that value genuinely, dramatically, and authentically privacy and, you know, the idea of having a large piece of land with a house in the middle of it so that, you know, um, and I'm not, I'm not critical of that. I, what, what happens is just that all our kind of, um, the way we, the, the underlying assumptions, even things like our building codes and our zoning bylaws tend to pri- prioritize privacy over social interaction. The, so the, the, in my mind, that the, the, pendulum has gone the wrong way from that perspective i think in smaller communities so there's a couple of things that are interesting of course cortez is an island right and so i think inherently psychologically the idea of being on an island is actually a really powerful one because you know ultimately you know the fairies can stop coming and you're going to have to survive right you know like that there is that quality which i think is a lovely quality about being on an island um the other thing is that there also is a quality of just smallness which can be really valuable for for social interaction like we know for example um uh that uh, you know, there's lots of opportunity for social interaction in a subway station, but it doesn't happen because, you know, you've got a ton of people that you don't know. So some of it is that in the course of your natural going about your business, um, because there aren't 15 stores in Cortez, you are going to cross paths with someone at Bertha's or um, the co-op simply because there's nowhere else to go, right? So that's a good thing. Like, and, and that's a, that's a, a lovely quality. So 
And there also is less opportunity for social stratification, which is interesting. Like we know that social isolation tends to increase, oddly enough, with more money, right? Um, again, it's there's a number of different lenses to put on that, but let's put, keep it, leave it that a simple way. Um, you know, there are no fancy restaurants. <laughs> on, on, so there isn't a place that the rich people can go. Um, to some extent, it does happen in the Gulf Islands that rich people go on the waterfront and the, the not-so-rich people go inside, which is, you know, a whole other conversation, which I don't think is necessarily a good thing. Um, but what happens, I think, that's a challenge in building these kind of communities is the fact that everybody needs to drive. And driving is inherently social, socially isolating on some way. Unless, of course, you're driving and listening to Cortez Radio, and it's inherently you're feeling connected with your community. Um, but I think one of the things to be to actually um, say that Cortez is doing really well is, is adding the seniors' housing close to the center of Manson's Landing. Because it's one of the things that the smaller communities like Cortez have not done at all, because it's almost impossible to age in place, Right. And so because, you know, at a certain point, you don't want to drive anymore. Well, at a certain point, you're just not safe to drive anymore. Let's be blunt about that. Um, and that happens for most people, almost everybody by 80. There's lots of examples of 90-year-old drivers. I'm not sure they're good examples. but um, And so if you want to stay in place, then, then, you know, you need to have a place that's walkable to some basic resources. You also need to have some transport, which is consistently a challenge. So I would say that one of the lessons as well is there's also a certain scale of community. Like there's a size that would enable you to run, for example, you know, even a twice daily bus that runs from Manson's to the ferry, something like that, that would be a huge win. And it's really difficult to economically produce those unless you have a little pocket of enough people within walking distance to that, that makes sense. And there's some known mathematics about those kinds of things, but often, um, uh, in, well, in all communities, people tend to, to have a visceral reaction that density is bad, right? And, and on one level, I think it's tragic because density is both in principle, again, there's, you can always give counterexamples. It's more environmentally friendly. People need to drive less, but certain concentrated density in the right way and done in the right way that supports social connection and supports people walking can be a huge boon, and often what we've done is create just these pockets of just single family houses. There's nothing wrong with single family houses, right? But what we need is we need other types of housing in these small communities. And it's often quite challenging to make the math work. One of the good things happening in British Columbia is BC housing is more aware of the smaller communities in a way that they hadn't been for a long time. For a long time, they're very focused on just the urban communities. And that's actually a huge benefit. So since we're we're getting you to focus on Cortez a little bit, um, I, I'm like if you were to be able to plunk down a couple, you know, centers or projects fully formed onto Cortez that you think would dramatically increase our opportunities for meaningful social engagement, yes. what what would you what would they be? What would they look like? Oh, sure. Well, I think there'd probably be three things. Um, uh, one would be obviously to have a couple of pockets of higher density housing. You know, I think, you know, even just to have, which is already happening close to Mansa's. So just to increase the, the amount of body heat, that'd be one. Um, the second would be a co-working space. 
you know, space that you could go, you know, people, especially since the pandemic, so many people, like lots of people were working remotely from Cortez anyway, but to have a sense of community about that, to have a, um, you know, a Zoom background that isn't your, you know, your underwear line standing on wall. We've all been there. Um, and the third would be, I would say, would be a casual pub. You know, we've talked about the danger of alcoholism, but we know that those kinds of spaces are really important for social connection. And most of the islands have one. Okay, will you say all three of those again? Sure. Um, uh, more, uh, more concentrated housing around, uh, let's just say Manson's for now. Um, but it could happen in other communities. So enough density that you could increase the number of services available. Some co-working spaces. So space that you could have great Zoom backgrounds and have a chance to collaborate with other people. And uh, a pub. Sold. Excellent. <laughs> um, I just want to check in whether I can keep you for another 15 minutes. Um, okay, yes, and uh, you're giving me the thumbs up, so I'm going to abuse your time for a little bit longer because now we're getting to the really exciting stuff, which is uh, how we're going to magically transform all of the world's problems and make uh, Cortez even more perfect. Um, and, you know, I, I think all all three of these things I've I've definitely and desperately wanted. I might add a fourth, which would be a little bit more of a um, year-round kind of town center type yes. place where you could have a large theater production yes. or et cetera. Um, uh, but but and I hear you saying yes. Yeah, so I'm going to just put down our fourth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, let's talk a little bit about. Um, uh, something that also can be challenging to put words on, but you, um, you people can't see this, but we've alluded to it. You're a white man, um, Canadian, mm-hmm. and some of your most exciting projects, it seems to me, have been working in this space of actually being uh, aware, kind of deeply aware of the ways that we are all colonized almost for Mm -hmm. lack of a better word, whether those are institutions, our buildings, um, the very way that we relate to each other often. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you've done that in places where you are definitely, at least in the physical sense, the white man coming in. So how have you navigated that space of being in that case, you know, an an outsider by being such an insider and how do you hold that or own it when you're going into a place like working with particularly uh, indigenous communities but even if you're going and working with students you're still an older white guy you know in a world right now that sometimes struggles to know what you know what what is the role of the of the, of the, <laughs> the older white man uh, so this is a big thing but i'm wondering how you kind of find the edges of that role um or have in your different projects sure there, there i think there are at least five questions in that one so we'll see if we could touch on all of them and tell me if i I miss any. So um, one thing is that none of us can do um, anything about the time we were born, the color of our skin, or our, well, you can do more things about your gender than you used to be able to, but in principle, let's, uh, let, let's leave, leave, leave aside the, the, the unique and important cases. Um, and so I think the question is, part of it is what you do with it. 
Uh, and I think that, that what, what's really important to do with it is, is to, um, to say, not be apologetic in any way for the person that you are, but make good use of the skills and privileges you have. I described my family upbringing, I considered it an incredibly privileged upbringing, not a wealthy upbringing in a sense, and certainly an upbringing like almost all of ours with some real downsides. But for whatever reason, you know, I kind of look at results, it produced four really interesting kids who grew up to adulthood doing good things. So that's the simplest measure for me of kind of okay. Um, and of course, kids can go wrong even in the best households. We all know that as well. Um, so, so one thing is what you do with it is important. I think it's important to um, uh, take advantage of specific opportunities that you're giving to you that don't have, to help people that don't have those particular privileges. So for example, um, I gave who, the, a young woman, Ori Scott, who's an, the first registered Indigenous architect, female Indigenous architect in British Columbia. Um, I gave her her first job, I, we, but, but I was the one who, who really pushed for her hiring, um, and, uh, and really, uh, encourage her to actually become registered. And part of it was that I said, you know, you are a symbol. Unfortunately, I mean, it's a heavy burden sometimes to be a symbol. And a lot of, I would say, one of the challenges of being Indigenous now is there's a lot of symbolism that's placed on being Indigenous that's not always fair or appropriate. In fact, in many cases, I would say it's not. But I said, you know, this is a chance for you to contribute. And Ori is now a successful partner in a firm that has beaten us out for projects, for example. So, um, but but she's also, you know, so those specific kinds of opportunities, like what, where are these people that need... Um, uh, that need help. And it's not necessarily, by the way, I think it's, um, um, it's, it's not necessarily one, one of the greatest disparities I think right now in our world is actually income disparity. I think it's a real big deal. That's often not talked about in part because it's much less obviously visible to many people. Um, but, but part of the challenge in architecture, for example, that's deeply frustrating is, is one of the paths to success for a long time, still unfortunately true, less true in Canada, very true in the States would be you go work for free for some super famous architect and you get their name on your resume and you'd be set, right? And the reality was you could only afford to do that if you could afford to work for free. So one of the concrete things I did when I first started my small practice, I said, I will pay people for every hour they work. You know, which is actually unusual at that time. And I didn't make a big deal of it, but it was something I really cared about. And in some cases, the only person that didn't get paid was me, but that's another story. Um, but it's still, I think that, that those kinds of real simple things are, are, are a very straightforward um, example of the sorts of things can you do. Our office right now is, it's probably not as diverse as, as we want, but one of the things that we felt was really important was we now have, in terms of the leadership group of the office, it is now, for a long time, it was just Peter and myself, so two white dudes, um, and now it's four, um, um, two white men and two, one white woman and one, it's funny, I always, Maya Lo is always funny, because I, I actually didn't know she was Japanese-Canadian, I've known her for many, many, many years, and her mother's Japanese and her father is, uh, her father was, was uh, Anglo. Um, uh, so I still don't quite think of her as that way, but I don't even like to think about it from that literal perspective. Some of it is, are you creating the right opportunities where, where all of those things, things occur? And the other thing I would say that's, um, a little more challenging is kind of finding ways to navigate, um, uh, especially in architecture. I think it's true in many professions. Architecture is a slow burn. 
like to bring together a huge range of skills, some of them intuitive, some of them intellectual, some of them technical. And so many architects, in fact, are in many good architects are inherently actually just older. It tends to be a late profession. Like uh, I'm 60 now. I anticipate going for another 20 years because I feel like I'm just getting started. Um, but, but one of the places, actually one of the very concrete challenges Another one, so I described the intern one. Another one is that the registration process sucks if you want to start a family. It often takes years to do. Um, when I was on the, the Council of the Architectural Institute of British Columbia, I did some discussions about this. It's still very, very difficult. A lot of technical reasons. It's not, um, but inherently, um, a lot of architects graduate university in their late 20s. If you're a woman who wants to start a family, um, and still in our culture, that 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 re- that um, weight of that child rearing still often sits on the woman's career. We'd like it not to be true, but it is a reality. And then you've got a whole bunch of registration to it. So the 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 percentage of female architecture students is actually very high in many cases. It's greater than fifty percent now, not always. Um, but the percentage of female registered architects is very low because of that drop off. Um, so one of the things we've done, for example, is we offer uh, maternity leave that's, that's greater than, uh, greater than normal. We also offer, um, a kind of small incentive to get people. So we support some childcare, right? Well, we, we give people a little bit extra money when they come back under the recognition that simply that life is, you know, you can kind of do whatever you want with that money. But the goal really is that, that you can, in fact, um, we'll do our best to bring you back into the workforce as you want to do it. Um, and we're still figuring out, we're still a young firm. We're trying to figure out the math of all this stuff, but that's our goal. So that's kind of structure of some of it. And the other thing I would say that's really important, I described, um, I, and this is something to be blunt, I've struggled to balance because um, my favorite times at work have been when I've absolutely invested everything in what I'm doing, even at the expense of my own personal life to some extent, not in necessarily a damaging way, but certainly in just a time management perspective way. And I do believe that to, if you've never had those kind of moments of intense passion where you're really committed, we're going to do what it takes to get it done. I also recognize that that fundamental attitude that I just, just stated is also in conflict with a lot of other people's values, people's values for their own time, for, for things outside of work. And I struggle with that sometimes. And I'm trying to think about whether that's, you know, the narrative that you and I have shared about the kind of arc of my personal career. Is that something that's just me? I mean, I know it's not just me, um, but is that something where I should just say that's something that's important to me and it shouldn't be, or I shouldn't have any expectations that it's important to other people? And it's a place that I'm just questioning because I know that the generation that's largely um, um, working at Human Studio, for example, does have separate values from that in many cases. And again, I don't like to say the generation. Like people have lots, there's lots of different people. Um, but I would say that certainly the cultural self-sacrifice that I grew up with um, is diminishing. And by and large, that's a really good thing. I also know that architecture is hard, right? And so, um, and you know this from having made many career choices yourself, is how do you, how do you bring those two together? And I think it's a, it's a core challenge that for people like myself, older white men, that answer was simple for a long time. And I would say the, ans- the fact that the answer is not simple anymore is really good, but I don't know what the outcome of it is going to be yet. 
It's, I really appreciate that as part of that answer, you talked again about the um, maybe the, the sort of nebulous swimming in the water aspect of our institutions, because I think it's often very hard to understand the side effects of things like, oh, you know, free unpaid internships, et cetera, um, which having grown, grown up poor in the U.S., um, I've thought, you know, maybe somewhat more about and also gotten to benefit from tons and tons of institutions Mm -hmm. and things that um, help privilege a particular kind of learner and a particular kind of person and a particular kind of, um, yeah, learning that I got to, you know, be the winner of. Mm -hmm. So thank you. All right. I want to take you back to... um, this awesome thing you said at the very beginning that you kind of laid out in your own history of kind of what took you from being at the bottom of, you know, your first architecture class to the top of your next um, architectural class. And you said you discovered what are those things that you were prepared to fail for? Yes. And so in this conversation, I've been kind of listing some of the things that it sounds to me like your answers would be about what those things throughout your career you have been prepared to fail for. So these are sort of like maybe the big um, ideas. So I'm going to list some of the ones that I uh, came up with, and then I'd like you to um, tell me which ones, you know, what, where I'm wrong and what else you would add. Um, You're never wrong, man. You know that. <laughs> good job. Good job. Yeah. <laughs> so I, one of the things you said, and I loved this one, was um, the idea of creating safe places where people could be one's self. Yes. Um, love that idea. Um, you also talked a bit about integrity, both uh, human integrity or integrity to oneself as well as uh, design integrity. Mm-hmm. Um, this idea of being as a designer or maybe even as a person, period, being open to anything, the potential of things. Um, and then you also talked about evidence-based sociability, in particular to some of the work you're doing now with fluid sociability. But I love that idea of evidence-based sociability. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there anything I should cross off that list? And what else should we add there? I don't think so. I would say, um, uh, you know, oddly enough, the one thing that might be missing there is just fun. Mm. You know, and it sounds like because, you know, we've had a, a serious kind of, um, you know, sort of a, a, a deep thing, deep conversation. But I am a believer like um, that, you know, on one level, you know, we can talk about all this. We're all going to be, you know, scattering ashes or, or rotting away under the dirt somewhere and nobody will remember us. And if you're not enjoying yourself at the same time and what I reckon, one of the things that did change, actually, when I look at a shift that I made from my first degree to my second degree, which is kind of, you know, a move really from visible failure to visible success was that I started having more fun. And, and, and I think that that was something that was important as well, because I think that, that um, uh, certainly for creative people, that just the process of pleasure and uh, thing. And one of the things about you know, social interaction as well, leaving aside again, we're talking about the health risks and resilience, all these kinds of things. It's more fun to know people, right? And it's more fun to be able to know. And so often we focus on like the nuclear family and the single spouse and those sorts of things. And um, and these are all really, really important things. But it's also just like one of the things is, 
you know, I think one of the greatest gifts that I can give to my children is amazing people doing interesting things that they can have fun with that are not just me or Holly. I'm going to ask you another question, <laughs> even though it was such a good ending. Because I think you, um, and it's about sort of designing in opportunities for fun. And it's about also something you said at the very beginning or early on, we were talking about the student community center at UBC, the nest. Mm-hmm. And you said you designed in specifically spaces for big kind of fun or social interaction, but also yeah. for the more introverted person who wanted to have smaller quieter moments of social interaction or what we used what we saw in paris this um year when we went that i thought was awesome was that lots of people doing things together and then also the person sitting by themselves maybe smoking a cigarette or reading a book yeah and the bench in the middle of the square surrounded by people doing things together and they seemed really content so how do you design in this sort of broader idea of like, like sociability is not just for the extrovert. Right. This is a very important question. But I do have a quick question for you first. Do you find that name dropping your recent trip to Paris really increases your support amongst the leadership of uh, no, the, no, the, yeah. I just, I, just, I, just I read I, when I say trip to Paris. I mean I read this great book. It made me feel like I, was I there. see. I see. Is there anywhere else you want to you know mention that you've been to recently or that your listeners should know about? I went to Powell River a couple times. I uh, got it. It's Understood. very exotic. Yeah. I've been to Whale Town recently, just to get the ferry, though. Um, so the question of introversion and extroversion, so actually, again, I, I would characterize that an aspect of diversity that we don't often talk about. There's been a little more attention to it. So I think certainly, um, I, I believe most of us have both of those things to different degrees. Um, uh, but I do think there are people, and, and I, one of the things I think is always really important in the introversion versus extroversion conversation is actually define what you mean. By introversion, a lot of people mean shy, and we have a, a negative association with it in our culture, you know, not in all cultures of the world. Um, I, my definition of introversion versus extroversion, introverts get their energy from being on their own. Extroverts get their energy from being other people. So an introvert will leave a party early, an extrovert will stay till the end. Uh, and, and and it's just how you recharge your batteries. It's that simple. Um, but there are some characteristics. So, for example, I think that uh, uh, certainly uh, introverts tend to be comfortable in smaller groups. So to create literal spaces that are comfortable for smaller groups. One of the pressures we often get in our architecture is make it big enough that everybody can fit. In it. And I always push back. I think it's actually better to have things where occasionally it's too tight, but most of the time it's comfortable being in a smaller group. Um, acoustics are important. Um, you know, like uh, introverts, like um, uh, I'm an extrovert, but I have hearing aids, for example. And so for me, there are, uh, and that's actually an issue with social isolation as well, another, a whole other story. Um, but, um, but, but having places which are somewhat quieter, where you can kind of control and, and I'm going to use it, cocoon yourself are important. And I think of these, you know, having both of these is, is really important, even symbolically, like expansive spaces versus inter, in, introspective spaces. Um, it's also in terms of running a, an effective workplace. Like one of the things that's known really concretely is that um, uh, if you have a meeting, extroverts will tend to speak very quickly and introverts will not speak immediately. So you have to actually, if you're in charge of a meeting, you actually have to allow silence to occur, 
which many extroverts are unaffected because the silence is the thing that invites introverts to share. Right? So there's some real kind of concrete aspects about this. And one of the challenges in architecture is that most um, architecture in a leadership role, not all, are extroverts, in part because a lot of what you have to do is very public, right? You have to present your projects at city council, those sorts of things. So I think effective organizational running also involves having space for introverts. So that has, in my mind, both a social dimension and a physical dimension. I love it. Um, I think this is so exciting and been a lot to, to think about. And I feel like there's going to be people who are going to want to know more. They're going to want to know more about some of your projects, like Fluid Sociability, and they're going to want to know more about you. Uh, where do they go? Um, www.humanstudio, um, H-U-M-A-N-S-T-U-D-I-O dot C-A. Dot C-A, not dot com. Humanstudio.ca. And there's a link to Fluid. We also have a great Fluid Circle site, which has a couple of lovely little videos, which are fun to watch. Um, we've got links to some podcasts there. Um, and uh, But mostly the, the Human Studio website will be a good, good place to start. And if there are people who want to just think a little bit more about the potential of social connection and um, and how they're designing things in their own life, whether it's their time, their spaces, their interactions, where would, what would the be the reading list? What would you start with? Oh, um, that's a good question. Uh, in terms of just, uh, social connection, um, bowling alone is a good one. It's a slightly older book. Um, and uh, it's a great uh, it's a great read though. That's Robert Putnam, P-U-T-M-A-N. It's probably twenty five years old now, but still I think very valuable. Um, if you want to know uh, one of the, I know that you have a personal history with the city of the city of Chicago. There's a typo for you. Um, uh, Eric Kleinenberg wrote a book called Heat Wave. And this is more about those who are kind of academically interested in social isolation, because it was a transformative book for many people. And I would say it was one of the key pieces of reading that I did, because it identified that people in the Chicago heat wave of 1995, the ones that were socially isolated were dramatically at higher risk of dying. And again, I'm not talking about people that had tons of friends, just people had someone to check on them, right? And I do think that that kind of social connection thing on an island like that, it is possible. We've talked about how people on Cortez do naturally connect. It's also places like this where people can actually isolate and nobody will know about it. And that can be a tragedy about a place like this. Uh, it's definitely very true. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate you taking the time and and just getting a little tiny moment in your brain. I hope you'll come back and we'll do more. We barely touched on men's groups and some of the other incredible things that I know we could go on and on about. Um, and I also want to just remind you, neighbor, that um, you know this time of year can be very lonely for some people. And as Bruce said, uh, and a lot of people can be isolated or sort of forgotten or not checked upon. So make sure you're taking that moment to check on your neighbor, to have that conversation and to reach out. And we always love to hear from you here at Folk U Radio. You can send us an email, the letter U at folku, F-O-L-K-U dot C-A. 
We have some exciting shows coming up in the near future, many featuring podcasts created by the Cortez Island Academy students talk about an extreme uh, practice or um, look at non-isolation. Uh, <laughs> that would be there. So thank you again, neighbor, for your time and your your great attention. And thank you so much, Bruce, for being here today on Folk U Radio. And Amanda, if I can have a last word. You may. I think I would like to acknowledge you specifically because what I know is that this is only one of the many, many ways you care about Cortez. And you are a huge gift to this community. And one of the reasons I will always do whatever I can to help you is I absolutely believe in your personal integrity and your commitment to your community. So on the behalf of all of the Cartesians, thank you. Thank you. Think. That's it for another edition of Folk U Radio. If you'd like to learn more about Folk U, or subscribe to our podcast series, visit us at folku.ca. That's F-O-L-K-U dot C-A. Folku is produced at CKTZ 89.5 FM, Cortez Radio dot C-A. My little brain's almost always got something lame it's got to say. It's embarrassing, all the stupid things.